Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. It says that Jesus entered and then he passed through Jericho. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. As we come to this passage of scripture in Luke chapter 19, we are approaching the final week of Jesus' life. And we are uh, most certainly probably within the last 10 days of Jesus' life and earthly ministry as we cross into this chapter. And we're told that now as he's made his way from the northern region of the land of, of Israel and the Galilee, and he's gone down now through all of the towns and villages southward heading towards Jerusalem, that he goes into the city now of Jericho and he entered it that he might uh, pass through it. Now, typically, when someone would go to Jerusalem and they would go through Jericho to get to Jerusalem... The reason why they would go through Jericho is so that they could avoid going through Samaria. Because as you know by now, if you've been following with us in our study, there was a strong rift that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans, which occupied that middle ground between Galilee and Jerusalem. So they would go to the Jordan, they would travel down the Jordan River, and then they'd come into Jerusalem through Jericho so as to avoid going through Samaria. However, Jesus never avoided Samaria at any point within his ministry. And we've already seen that as he's gone through from north down to south, that he's gone through the villages of the Samaritans. So that's not the reason why Jesus is going through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. And what we're soon to discover is that the reason why Jesus went through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem is because there is someone there that he is called to reach and someone there that he wants to reach. In fact, it's only one man that he will reach within the city of Jericho. Well, who is that man? We're told in verse 2 that his name was Zacchaeus and we're told that he was the chief among the publicans that is, that he was the ruler over the tax collectors and that he was very rich. Now, the tax collectors were hated within that land, second only to the Samaritans that we've already spoken about within this study. And the reason why the tax collectors were hated is because the way that they would earn their living would be most of the time through uh, uh, trickery or through dishonesty. And the way the, the system worked in those days is that Rome, which was the ruling governing body over Israel, would bid out the positions of the tax collectors and they would set a quota as to how much those tax collectors needed to send back to Rome. But the stipend was that whatever they were able to exact from the people over and beyond what the quota of Rome was, they were allowed then to keep for themselves. And so they became very good at hiding taxes within both the, the local um, municipality needs that had to be met and then also through the bureaucracy of the tax collector system. And that is that he was the chief among them. And so he would appoint his people and then they would appoint their people. And within all these people collecting taxes for different things in different ways in the process, everyone who was in that racket became very wealthy. And so they were hated by the people because of the way that they would earn their money, who it was that they worked for, 
and uh, the fact that the money that they had made them to live a much higher standard uh, of life than everybody else. And so this man Zacchaeus would probably be one of the most hated people and one of the, the least honorable people within the, the, the city of Jericho that Jesus has now passed into. Now, the interesting thing about this is that in the last segment that we read in, in Luke, in chapter 18, we read uh, an encounter that Jesus had with a rich, young ruler. And, and we saw that this ruler came to Jesus, and he came because he was troubled about the fact that he was mortal. He had power, he had youth, and he had money, but he had a gnawing sense inside that none of that was going to last forever. And so hearing about Jesus and thinking that perhaps Jesus might have the answer for how he might obtain eternal life, he comes to him and he says, what must I do that I might have eternal life? But we saw that he was turned away from Jesus and that he refused Jesus' offer of eternal life. And the reason he refused the offer is because he was going to have to trade the wealth that he had in order to get the eternal life that he was seeking. And what we learn about the rich young ruler is that his reason for coming to Jesus was because he was looking for a way to enjoy his money more and he saw Jesus as the way to do it. He wasn't coming to Jesus for Jesus' sake or for salvation's sake. He wanted the answer so that he could enjoy his life in a greater measure. And so he goes away. And then Jesus says to his disciples in response to that, he says, how difficult or how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? He said it would be easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And the disciples heard it. And they said, then who, Lord, can possibly be saved? And here was Jesus' answer. He said, with men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And so what we have before us now in the story of this rich publican tax collector who's about to have a life-saving encounter with Jesus is we see what God can do with something that is impossible for man. Now, the difference between Zacchaeus, the man in our subject tonight, and the rich ruler that Jesus said was an impossible cause in the chapter that's before us is that the ruler loved his money and wanted Jesus for a means to enjoy it. And Zacchaeus is different from that in that he actually had something stirring within his heart. And there was a realization that was brewing within him that having money wasn't satisfying. And that if he could find something in his life that was truly satisfying, that would meet the real needs that he had, then that would be worth trading everything else I have in order to get it. And that was not the mentality of the rich ruler, but Zacchaeus, we're going to see that for him it's worth it. That if Jesus is the answer for satisfaction in the heart and salvation of the soul, then it's worth losing all to get it. And so we see now the evidence that there's something happening within his heart in verse 3. It says that he sought to see Jesus who he was. But he could not because of the press and because he was little of stature. So he wants to see Jesus, but he's got a problem. There's a big crowd of people and he's not able to push his way through the crowd. And he's not tall enough to see over the heads of the crowd. And so he's restricted by those two things and he's not able to see this man that 
somehow has stirred hope within him that there's an answer for life. And so his solution in verse 4 is that he ran before and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. So he sees the way that Jesus is going He recognizes that there's a very climbable tree up ahead and he feels that if he goes ahead of the whole crowd, he's going to climb this tree and he's going to be able to see Jesus. Now we kind of read this and we just think, all right, well, that's practical and uh, it makes sense for a man who wants to see Jesus. He sees a way around it and so he does it. But I want you to consider with me just for a moment who this man is that is lowering himself to a level that he's willing to climb a tree just to see someone who's walking with a crowd of people. Now we think, okay, he was short of stature and all, and so he didn't get much respect as it was. But remember that he was very rich, and he had a position of great prominence. And this would be very similar in today's world as if you were to read this story and it were to be about someone like Donald Trump or someone like Ben Bernanke, you know, the former chairman of the Federal Reserve. You know, these aren't popular people. At least they weren't, you know, but but they're very rich people and they're very dignified people and they have a, a certain level of pride being in the position that they're in. And so what this tells us is that there's enough going on in this man's heart that he's willing to risk losing dignity and he's willing to climb a tree in the presence of the citizens that hated him and, and risk the ridicule for the sake of just seeing who this man was, if he might just catch a glimpse. Is there something about him wherein he might have the answer? And so it tells us in verse 5 that when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he saw him. And he said unto him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at your house. And so Jesus stops in the place directly under the tree where Zacchaeus is hiding and calls him out on his craftiness. And then not only calls him out, but calls him by name and then invites himself over for lunch on that day. And he says that I'm going to stay in your house. And the response of Zacchaeus in verse 6, it says that he made haste and he came down and he received him joyfully. And at this point, the narrative, in a sense, goes blank. We have no idea what took place in in the interaction between Jesus and Zacchaeus on the way to his house. We have no idea what took place during the lunch, the conversation that transpired. We don't know what work took place within Zacchaeus' heart, the things that he heard or responded to or was quickened by. None of that is given to us in the text. The only thing that we know about the encounter is told to us in verse 7. It says that when they saw it, that is the citizens of the land, It says they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be the guest with a man that is a sinner. So they murmur at Jesus because of his supposed lack of discernment and discretion about who this man is that he has now gone to be a guest in the house of. Well, we come back to the narrative now after Zacchaeus has had a life-changing experience with the Lord. And notice the response of Zacchaeus to the life-giving effect that Jesus has had within his life. It says that Zacchaeus stood and he said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, then I restore to him fourfold. I want you to think about how monumental this is that this rich, stingy tax collector is doing. He's saying, I'm giving up half 
of my entire estate, everything that I have, I will give away half just to the poor. And from the half that remains, anything that I've taken by fraud that was dishonestly attained within my life, I will restore it to those whom I took it from by the measure of fourfold or four times as much. Now, there was no law within the commandments that required that he do this. There was a law that required that he restore either 20% or at least you know, double according, depending on what he did with what was taken. But what Zacchaeus is offering to do here is above and beyond what was required within the law uh, for him. And so notice the response of Jesus to what Zacchaeus is pl- uh, planning to do in verse nine. It says, and Jesus said unto him, this day is salvation come to this house for so much as he also is the son of Abraham. Now it's important that we understand that the salvation of Zacchaeus that Jesus is proclaiming over his life is not because he decided to give half of his goods up and restore fourfold those that he took from. But rather, the reason why he's willing to do those things is because salvation has already taken place within his heart. In other words, he's not purchasing God's favor with his actions. God's favor in his life is motivating his actions and the reason why he's willing to do these things. And as Jesus hears these things, he ratifies the evidence of the work that's taking place in the heart by saying salvation has come today to this house. Now, here we see something that I think is extremely important for us to consider in our day and in our own uh, uh, relations with the Lord in the day that we live in. And that is this, is that it is impossible for someone to have an encounter and a saving encounter with Jesus Christ and to not be changed by it. It's impossible for someone to pass from darkness, which is what the Bible says that we are if we don't have Christ living in our heart, into light and not have there be an effect. It's impossible for someone to pass from the category of death and spiritual blindness to the category of life and spiritual sight and to not have there be visible things that are changed within that light. And if someone claims that they've had an encounter with Jesus, but yet there is no change within their life, then you must question whether or not that person really did have an encounter or at least a saving encounter with Jesus Christ. Because if there's no change, then there hasn't been any salvation within it. And so we see the change taking place within this man Zacchaeus' life. We hear Jesus' ratification of the salvation that's taken place. And then Jesus calls him a son of Abraham. He says, for as much, is he not also a son of Abraham? Now that is either sarcasm because there aren't very many sons of Abraham that are willing to give up half of their goods and restore fourfold, or it's a a, a term of acceptance and that he's saved by faith, or maybe it's a little bit of both. But either way, uh, the salvation of Zacchaeus spoken of by Jesus. And then Jesus summarizes the whole encounter and the whole course of his mission in Jericho and in the world in verse 10 by saying, for the son of man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. And that's why Jesus went into the land of Jericho even to begin with. And it's the reason why he came into the world. And it's the reason why he's come near to us. His desire is to seek, to find, and to save what was lost. And so the passage 
um, before us teaches us that it is not an easy thing for a man or a woman that is a sinner to be brought to the place where they're aware of their need and they're awakened to the conviction that there's something within their heart that isn't right and that they are lost. And especially that is true for those that are rich and powerful, as Jesus said in the last passage. But what this passage teaches us is that God knows how to do it. And even in those cases that seem to be impossible for men, they are not impossible for God. He knows how to get into someone's heart and to begin to stir things around and to bring them to the place where they're aware of their need and then ultimately then to bring them into the profession of salvation. And another thing that we see here is that Jesus is willing to go into a whole city to just reach one person that finds themselves within that place where they're searching uh, for a savior. And so we learn that from Zacchaeus. Then Jesus goes on and it says in verse 11 that, that as they heard these things, that he added and he spoke a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem. So he's near his destination. And because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. And so here we see the contrast between the perceived reality that's in the hearts of the disciples and the truth of the situation that Jesus knows is actually uh, the, the case and what's going on. What the disciples are thinking at this point is that they are about to ascend into Jerusalem and that Jesus is going to initiate a revolution and they're going to overthrow the power of Rome. He is going to establish himself as the king over Israel and ultimately over the whole world. He's going to set up the reign of Christ that was spoken of throughout the the, the history of God and that all of them are going to be a part of this glorious establishing of the kingdom. But what Jesus knows is actually going to take place is that he's going to go into Jerusalem with them. He's going to be officially rejected by the elders and scribes and the people that are there. That he will then be crucified. Three days later, he'll rise again. And then 40 days after that, he'll ascend into heaven. And then 10 days later, the Holy Spirit will come down and the kingdom of God will come in its spiritual appearance through the church and the birth of the church upon the earth. And then there will be a period of time when the church will grow and flourish in the world. And then one day in the future, Jesus will return the second time. And that's when he's going to set up his visible kingdom and his eternal kingdom in that time when he comes again. And so what Jesus knows is that there's going to be a space of time when he will not be physically present but yet the kingdom of God is established upon the earth. And so the purpose of this parable that he's about to tell is in relation to that gap of time that will exist when he departs for that season. And so he says to them in verse 12, he says, a certain nobleman, and that's him in the parable, went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then to return. And so he called his 10 servants And he delivered to them 10 pounds. And he said unto them, occupy until I come. And so he's going to go, this nobleman, and he's going to go and he's going to do business where he will not be with them. He's going to receive a kingdom and then he'll return. But while he's gone, he delivers to each one of the servants a single pound. He has 10 pounds. He has 10 servants. He gives one pound to each servant. And then he gives to them the command that they're to use that pound to trade, to invest, to do business. 
and they're to occupy with that pound until the time that he returns and comes again. Now, what this is speaking of for you and I, who are his servants in the world in this day, to whom he has delivered these pounds, it speaks to us concerning our spiritual gift. Now, the Bible teaches us that every person that is born again, that God saves and we come into a relationship with him through his son, Jesus, that Jesus comes and he lives inside of us through his Holy Spirit. And upon coming in and living inside of us, he gives to every one of us a gift or a series of gifts that kind of make up a calling or the pound or the talent that he's given to us. Now, if you want to read in the Bible what those gifts are, you can read Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, where the Apostle Paul describes very generically the seven gifts that God gives, uh, and and he gives them to Christians. And each of those gifts has a different expression according to our personality. It's manifested in different ways according to how God desires to use us. It has different types of operations and the way that it is, is expressed from person to person. But every single one of us has a gift, something that God has given to us in order that we might serve him while we're waiting for him, and that in serving him, we would bear fruit from our lives and multiply the size or the glory of his kingdom by the use of our gift. And so he says, occupy until I come. Then in verse 14, he says, but his citizens hated him, that is the king. And they sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. Now, it's important that we draw the distinction in the parable between the servants who are delivered the pounds and the citizens who hate the king, that they are different entities. And what Jesus is letting us in on and letting them in on by giving this piece of the puzzle is that he's letting us know that we will be seeking to operate and use our gift in an environment where there is hostility to his cause. That is, he's given us something to do, but what he's telling us is that we're going to do it in a place where there's going to be resistance to what we're trying to do. Is that the people that we're trying to reach and trying to bless and trying to shine light on are going to oppose us because they don't like him. And basically what we draw from it is that Jesus is saying is that there's going to be an expense or a cost associated with using your gift if you desire to use it. It's not necessarily going to be easy for you to just go and trade and do business within it. And so he leaves. And then verse 15, it says that he came to pass that when he was returned, having now received the kingdom. And the Bible teaches us that when Jesus rose from the dead and then ascended into heaven, he became, according to Colossians chapter one, the one who is seated far above all principalities and powers and the rulers of this age. And the authority in all of heaven and earth was then delivered to the son, to Jesus Christ. And so upon his ascension and his victory, he became the one who reigns over the kingdom. And so he goes into a far country, he receives the kingdom, And then it says that he returns, and then when he returns, he commanded these servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. And so Jesus returns, and upon returning, each of the servants now must reckon with him how they did and what they did with what he gave. And so it says, then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained 
10 pounds. And so this man brings back tenfold more than what was delivered to him. One became 10. I would say that's a pretty good ROI for, for someone, a return on investment for someone who delivers a gift. And Jesus' response to that in verse 17, he said unto him, well, thou good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, have thou authority over 10 cities. And so Jesus is pleased with what this man ha- has been able to produce through the use of his gift. And it's a comfort to me and an encouragement to realize that the only thing that was necessary for this man to turn one into 10 was faithfulness. He didn't need to be necessarily gifted. He didn't need to be a genius. He didn't need to be different than he was. He didn't even need to really work it or do anything kind of dishonest to kind of cook it a little bit. All he had to do was be faithful to use the thing that God had given him already And if he did that, then he would um, produce from it. Jesus told a parable in, in Mark's gospel concerning the kingdom of God. And he said that the kingdom of God works like this. He says, it's like a farmer who threw seed on the ground. He sowed his seed. And at night and day, the rain fell, the sun shone upon that seed, and it began to grow up. He knew not how. The farmer didn't know how that even took place, the germination of the seed, the sprouting of the plant. But with patience and time and faithfulness, he said first there was the sprout, and then there was the ear, and then there was the full corn within the ear. The fruit began to bear forth. But the whole point of that parable is what Jesus was saying is that if you want to bear fruit within the kingdom of God, what it takes is faithfulness and patience. Do what it is that God's given you to do and endure in that, and you're going to bear fruit. And this man turns one into ten. It's interesting that you read the testimony of Billy Graham and his salvation. And it can be traced back to a Sunday school teacher who was faithful to teach kids that had no visible reward for what he was doing at all. And can you imagine for one minute what it's going to be like for that man who is responsible for the salvation of Billy Graham to stand before the Lord when he sees the pages that, that give, in a sense, the return on the investment for him just being faithful to use his gift. And the Lord says, tell me, what did you gain by trading? And he says, Lord, your pound has gained one million. And it's nothing but faithfulness. But it's interesting that we don't really know the effect or the fruit that we're producing, and we won't until we stand before him. And so then it says in verse 18 that the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And so he gains half as much, but the Lord, it says in verse 19, said likewise to him. So the Lord was pleased with that, and he said, be thou also over five cities. Now, understand this, that what Jesus is is teaching us here and letting us in on is that our faithfulness with the little that he gives to us here on earth and our faithfulness to use the gifts that he's given to us is going to translate into greater responsibilities and richer blessings when we get into heaven. And I don't know what it means to be a ruler over a city in that context. I imagine it's much different than what we would think it to be according to what we know of things on earth here. But it certainly does tell us that heaven is not going to be boring. It won't be a bunch of people sitting in the woods with a harp on clouds just playing along and strumming for all of eternity. It's an encouragement to us to realize that what we're doing on this world now makes a difference. And that one day when we stand before him and we receive for the things that we did, It will be well worth what we put in now when we see what we then get to do then because of it. And so in verse 20 now, it says that another came. 
saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. For I feared thee, which is a lie. He really feared the citizens because you are an austere man or a severe man, a rigid man, a rough man, which out of his own mouth, he's testifying that he doesn't know who Jesus is. And he says, because you take up that which you laid not down and you reap that which you did not sow. And so he says, God, I I didn't do anything with what you gave to me. And the reason I didn't do anything with it is because I was afraid of you and because you're very harsh and I was intimidated by that harshness. And also the other reason why is because basically you're going to get done what you're going to get done and you're going to get it done whether you use me to get it done or whether you use somebody else. You take up what you don't sow and you reap where you didn't lay down. And so it didn't really seem like a very important thing to me to to use the the talent that you gave me, the the, um, pound, the investment, the gift, because I didn't really need uh, to do that. And so Jesus responds to him in verse 22. He said unto him, out of your own mouth will I judge you, you wicked servant. Isn't it interesting that Jesus views a servant who sits on a gift and doesn't use it as wickedness. And this is a man who's saved or a woman who's saved that's going to stand before him one day that had a gift and just didn't use it. And the reason that they didn't use it is is because it was either too hard or conventional wisdom said that it didn't matter. It wasn't worth the the hostility that I would receive from those that didn't want to hear the message that I would give or uh, whatever other reason that that they'll have before them at that day. But Jesus says it's wickedness. And here's why it's wicked. It's wicked because if God gives one of us a gift, then he intends that gift to bring light or blessing into the life of someone else. And if we wrap it in a napkin and we don't use that gift, then that means that that light and that blessing that was supposed to be ministered by us wasn't. We didn't do the thing that he had called us to do and the person missed out on it. And second of all, it's wicked because it means that that servant didn't care at all that he wasn't inter- or didn't care at all that he wasn't in the will of God. There was no desire in that servant to do what the Lord asked of him to do. Didn't want to please the Lord. Didn't matter. That doesn't matter. This is what I want to do. It's my life. And it's the picture of a selfish life, a life that is lived and spent and consumed completely upon itself. And Jesus says, you knew that I was an austere man taking up what I laid not down and reaping what I did not sow. Wherefore then did you not give my money into the bank so that at my coming I might have required my own with usury? You could have at very least made yourself available, Jesus said. That's what it means to put your money in the bank. When you put money in the bank, you're making it available for someone else to use, but in the process there's interest being drawn. And this person was so tied up within their own thing that they weren't even open to making themselves available for God to use them according to their talent. Now, anyone who opens themselves up and says, God, I don't know what to do with this and I don't know how to invest it, but I'm open, Lord, that you would use me within it. That person will find themselves being used because God will open a door for that person and ultimately they'll begin to bear fruit within their lives. But to bury it in a napkin is a waste of a talent and it's a waste of a life and it's a waste of a Christian life and it's a waste of God's blessing upon a life. I can't count how many um, of someone else's talents 
are responsible for me being where I am uh, right now doing what I'm doing before you and in front of you. I'm here right now because a multitude of people were willing to use the gift that God gave them at an expense to themselves. Some of them the expense of persecution. Some of them the expense of ridicule and hostility from me. But they were willing to do it out of faithfulness to him. And now I'm very grateful. And they, they are too, I hope, because of it. But I wonder how many people miss out on blessing within their life or even maybe miss out on salvation because of pounds that are buried in napkins. And let that search us tonight. What gift has God given to you? And what are you doing with it? And is it available for him uh, to use it if he desires to use it within your life? And so he said, verse 24, to them that stood by, take from him the pound and give it to him that has 10 pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he has 10 pounds. For I say unto you that unto everyone which has shall be given and from him that has not, even that which he has shall be taken away from him. In 1 Corinthians chapter three, the apostle Paul gives us a warning. And he says, be very careful how you live your life now that you're saved. Because the way that you live and the things that you give yourself to are going to translate into your future when you come into heaven. And Paul says this, that there will be those that build upon the foundation of Christ within their lives with gold, silver, and precious stones, things that endure. And there will be others that build with wood, hay, and stubble. And he says, if your life is built with nothing but earth, wood, hay, and stubble, then that life and all the work of that life is going to be burned up. Now listen. He says that person will still be saved, but they'll be saved as by fire, meaning that the smoke of watching their life work consume and dissolve before them, the smell of that smoke will still be on them, even though they make it into the kingdom. But understand this, that they will come into the kingdom with nothing. They will inherit eternal life, but they will have nothing to show for the opportunity they had to bring glory to Jesus in this life and then to bring glory to him in the world that is to come later on and to experience the pleasure of that world uh, then. And so it says then in verse 27, but those my enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring them hither and slay them before me. Now, remember, there's three people within this uh, parable. There's the servants, the citizens that despised him and would not submit to his lordship, and then there's the nobleman himself. And so the citizens that would not rule over him, those people will not be saved, and Jesus very pointedly uh, points that out. And so as we look at this parable, as we take the whole thing and zoom out to the place where it comes into clarity and, and we look at it, what does it speak to us today? It's a very clear and candid reminder from the Lord that we are called as his people living in the world in this day to live our lives occupying with our time, our resources, and our gifts in such a way that he might not come back for a hundred years. But at the same time, we must maintain the mindset that he could come at any moment. If we have one without the other, we go out of balance. If we live like he could come in a hundred years, but we don't have the mindset that he could come right now, then we'll waste the hundred years that we have. If we think, well, he's going to come right now, then we won't occupy as though he might not come for a hundred years. And so it's a very challenging thing that we're called to do, but he calls us to do it. And he gives us the power to do it when we submit our will for him that we might do it.
Maybe a hundred years, Lord. May I serve as though it's going to be that long. But may I have the mentality that you could come back right now and may I serve with that kind of fervency. And so in verse 28, it says that when he had thus spoken, it says that he went before ascending up now to Jerusalem. And so he's met his uh, goal. He's gotten to where he has ultimately been going. And it says that it came to pass that when he was come nigh now to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called the Mount of Olives, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go ye into the village over against you, in the which at your entering you shall find a colt tied, whereon yet never man sat. Loose him and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, Why do you loose him? Thus shall you say unto him, Because the Lord has need of him. And they that were sent went their way and found even as he had said unto them. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto them, Why loose ye the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. And so they brought him to Jesus, and then they cast their garments upon the colt, and then they set Jesus thereon. Now what this passage is giving to us from uh, the beginning of verse 28 all the way up through the end of verse 44 is the testimony of what's called the triumphant entry of Jesus Christ. That is the climaxal maximum of his uh, first coming's purpose. And that is the presentation of Jesus as the king of the Jews now to the Jews. And this whole um, bit with the donkey or the colt of the donkey was prophesied in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, concerning the day of his presentation. And it says this, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass, upon the colt, the foal of an ass. That is the offspring of a donkey. Now, just picture that in your mind for one moment. Here's the king of all the universe, the creator of every man, the one who's high above all principalities and powers, and he's presented as a king in humble clothing with no crown. And he's riding upon the pony of a donkey. And he's riding into Jerusalem. Probably his feet dragging on the ground as it went. His robe in the bottom of it just scraping along the dust as he goes. And yet this is his official presentation as the king unto them. A far cry from the picture that many of them had within their minds. But this was prophesied that this was the way that he would come. And it says that as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so the spirit is rising and swelling up as Jesus is now coming in. The noise of the crowd is beginning to increase. They're spreading their clothes out in the way and upon the donkey. And they're beginning to shout and cry out, quoting from Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 was a messianic psalm. And what that means is it was a psalm that was prophetic concerning the coming of Messiah and of his presentation to them as their king. And it reads this in verse 22 of Psalm 118. It says that the stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day 
which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now. You read in Matthew's gospel that they were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means save now. And they would say, save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. And then verse 26 is what they were saying uh, in, in, in Luke 19. Blessed be he that comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. And so what they are doing is they are proclaiming that this is the coming of their Messiah. And they're doing it scripturally in response to prophecy and by the power of the Spirit of God that has come upon them for this moment. Now, the opponents of Jesus, the Pharisees and the religious elite that were there in that day, knew exactly what it was that they were saying and why they were saying it. Thus, in verse 39, it says that some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and he said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Now, when I read this, to me, this becomes very interesting. And here's why. Because Jesus at this point has been on the earth physically for three and a half years. And over the course of that three and a half years, there have been glimpses along the way that revealed who he was. There have been individuals that have realized that this is the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world. But in every instance where someone calls Jesus out and says, we know who you are. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. Jesus' response to them all is the same. He says, shh, don't tell anybody, but keep this to yourselves because my hour has not yet come. He does that faithfully every time they come to him. He says, shh, don't tell. Keep this to yourselves. Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Flesh and blood has not revealed this, but shh, nevertheless. And he quiets it every time. But now, when the whole multitude of the people are making a universal proclamation that he is the king, the Messiah, not only does he not hush them and tell them not to say anything, But when the Pharisees say, quiet your disciples and tell him to hush them, his response to them is, if these would hold their peace, then even the stones themselves would begin to cry out. Now, why? Why is it that he would hush everyone else? But here now, he's saying that the stones would say it if the people that were here didn't. Well, the answer comes to us. Notice in verse 41. It says that when it was come near... And he beheld the city. And when you come down from the Mount of Olives, uh, it's a beautiful view. You can see the whole city as you're coming down. And so you can picture Jesus kind of descending upon that road that would come into Jerusalem. And he can see the entire uh, skyline of the city as he's coming. And it says that he began to weep over it. And here's the reason why he's weeping in verse 42. Saying, if you had known, even you, at least in this your day, the things which belong unto your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. The most important words in what Jesus just said are the three words at the beginning of the verse where he says, this thy day. If you had known, you at least in this thy day. The same day that David was speaking of in Psalm 118 when he said, this is the day that the Lord has made. 
And this is the day that Jesus comes and is presented to them as king. And this is the day that they missed out on the things that beheld or, or were accounted to their peace. What was so important about this day? The most incredible prophecy that is given in the Bible is given to us in Daniel chapter 9. And in Daniel chapter 9, the angel Gabriel visits Daniel. And he tells Daniel that there will be a period of 483 years that will span between the time that a commandment is given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the day that the Messiah, the Prince, is presented to the nation of Israel. It will be 483 years. Now that proclamation to restore and rebuild Jerusalem was given on March 14th, 445 BC by King Artaxerxes. At that day, you could begin to count the days. 483 years, according to the Babylonian calendar, 360 days. It plays out to be 173,880 days. And you could begin to count from that day down, every day, counting down a number. And when you do that and you add 173,880 days to, April, or to March 14th, 445, what it brings you to is April 6th, 32 AD, which is the very day that now Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And that's the reason why Jesus hushed everyone and said, my time is not yet. My time is not yet. It isn't time for me to be presented to the nation as Messiah, but that day will come. And that day comes. It's right here in Luke chapter 19. And so Jesus comes, and that is why the rocks would cry out if the disciples would hold their peace, because he's the one um, that fulfilled it on this day. By the way, because of that prophecy in Daniel that gives to us the very day on which Messiah would be presented, what that tells us is that if Jesus is not the Messiah, then no one is the Messiah, because that was the day that was given that the Messiah would come. And so he says that because if you had known, so Jesus is, is uh, saying that um, this is why the rocks would cry out, but now he's weeping. And the second question that we have is why is Jesus weeping? And here's why Jesus is weeping. Number one, it's in verse 42. He says, because the things that belonged unto your peace are now hidden from your eyes. That is because you rejected the presentation of my salvation, because you rejected my offer of grace to you as a nation, now the things that I wanted to do for you, I will not be able to do for you. Blindness is going to come upon Israel. Paul says it in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. He said that blindness has happened unto Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles is come in. In 2 Corinthians, he said that there's a veil over the face of the Jews that even to this day, that when the law is read, they cannot see or understand how it pertains to Jesus Christ. There is a supernatural blindness that has been placed upon the children of Israel because of their rejection of him. So not only did they miss out on the peace that was afforded them. But also then it says in verse 43, he says, for the days shall come upon you that your enemies shall cast a trench around you and shall compass you around and keep you in on every side. And they shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another 
because you knew not the time of your visitation. So not only are you not going to experience the blessings that are associated with my coming, but it's also only a matter of time now until you're going to experience judgment associated with your rejection of my presentation. And he holds them accountable to the prophecy that was given in Daniel saying that you should have known that this would be the day of your visitation. It was told to you to the very day when I would come. There is, I believe, in every human life a visitation that comes from the Lord when he presents himself to a life and and opens someone's eyes to the fact that he is their salvation. It could come in the form of a season of your life wherein you're drawn to spiritual things and maybe you come and you spend uh, a couple of weeks or several weeks in church or in reading the Bible or maybe listening to a series of tapes and, and there's something that's stirring within your heart as you're attentive to things that you never were attentive to. It might come to you in the form of just a single moment where God does something supernatural. Maybe he rescues you from a a situation that you're in. Or maybe you're not expecting anything at all and God just comes in and and he, he does something in your life in a way that there's a conviction that comes into your heart and into your life that there's a God and and that you know who he is. And in a sense, the the plea of, of his salvation is being offered to you. It might be in the form of an evangelist or someone that comes and the words that they speak pierce like arrows into your heart and it causes you to understand God and his message in a way that you never have before. And I believe that God comes and he gives every single person a very fair and reasonable chance to either accept or deny the offer of his salvation within their life. Sometimes that can be a period of time. Sometimes God forbears over a period of years and he waits patiently for someone. Sometimes it's one opportunity that a person has to receive Christ within their life. But everyone will have enough of an opportunity that in heaven's court, God will be able to declare before you that you had an honest chance with understanding and conscious awareness of what the message was to receive or to refuse. And to refuse that message is one of the most dangerous things that you can do. Because not only when you refuse that message do you miss out on all of the things that God is desiring to do within your life, but it also seals your destiny that no matter whether it's tomorrow or whether it's 40 years from now, and it would be 40 years for them, ultimately your experience will be desolation and destruction. And that's why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, he says, today is the day of salvation. That if today you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but let Jesus in. The saddest thing that can happen in the life of an individual, and it happens in the life of individuals, is the day that heaven ratifies a person's rejection of Jesus Christ. It says that Pharaoh hardened his heart seven times. Seven times God gave Pharaoh the opportunity to receive repentance. But then after the seventh time, it says seven more times that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And I believe that there can come a point in a person's life that rejects and rejects and rejects or puts it off and puts it off and puts it off that God will come into that life and he will say, you've made your decision and now these things are hidden from your eyes and it will only be a matter of time now. And that's the saddest thing that a person can experience. We are in the age of grace right now. And God says in Romans chapter 10 that he has stretched out his hands all day long to a disobedient and a gainsaying people. 
but they would not. It says that he went into the temple and he began to cast out them that sold therein and them that bought, saying unto them, it is written that my house is the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. The first thing that Jesus does upon entering into Jerusalem in this last week now of his life is that he purifies the temple. He's there during the Passover season. The population of the land would swell at that time as people would come from all over the known world and they would bring their lambs. It was commanded by the law of Moses that they would have to bring a perfect and blemish-free sacrifice to be offered by the priests in those days. And so the people would come to offer them. But because some of them didn't have lambs that were without blemish, and some of them had to travel so far that they couldn't bring a lamb without blemish, what the priests did is that they set up a booth within the court of the Gentiles where you could buy a lamb that was pre-approved already by the priests, but they were doing it at an exorbitant rate. And if someone came in from a far country and had foreign currency, they would first have to exchange the money at a rate to Jewish money, shekels, and then they would buy the lamb at the exorbitant rate. And the result of this is that the priests and the religious establishment was becoming very wealthy on account of people that were coming to worship God according to what God had commanded. And so the priests, what they were doing was using the law of God as leverage, and the people were being extorted by them out of, out of their sincere desire to, uh, to worship. And it was happening in the court of the Gentiles, the place where the Gentiles could come and examine and see for themselves the things of God. And so thus Jesus now coming into his house sees these things going on, and he begins to wreck the place. And here's what you need to understand about this as we uh, close and consider it. Is number one is that God does not want people turned off to God because the religious establishment is using them to get rich themselves. That bothers God. Number two, the business end of spiritual things should never become such that the purpose and mission of spiritual things is lost. God said that the purpose of the nation was to be a light unto the Gentiles. God wanted the Gentiles in the court of the Gentiles so that they would see and hear the truth of God. But there was no room for Gentiles because business had crowded out the mission that God had for them. And then number three, God does not want those that serve in his name, his servants, to use that position as a platform to enrich themselves. And anyone who does that is viewed by God as a thief. And that's why Jesus says, you've made it a den of thieves and of robbers. And that's a serious thing before God. The Bible also tells us that we are the temple of the living God. That in the New Testament covenant, he has come and he lives inside our hearts. So let me ask you this question, Christian, as we close. If Jesus were to come tonight into your heart, his dwelling place, would he find things there that he would want to cast out? Things that would make him uncomfortable. Verse 47, it says that, And he taught daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the chief of the people sought to destroy him, but they could, find no, uh, find, they could not find what they might do, for all the people were very attentive to him. And so the intensity of the plot thickens now as they have to become uh, um, crafty in their way in which they're going to uh, gather Jesus. And we'll stop there for tonight. We'll pick up 
in chapter uh, 20 next week as we continue. And so, uh, Anthony, come close us in song and we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, for the testimony of your, of your work within the world. And Lord, as we consider the things that we uh, heard tonight, Lord, in the scripture that we read and um, how you went into the city of Jericho just to reach one single man and we saw your visitation. Lord, how you would come into one place to reach one person whose heart was being stirred and drawn to you. And Lord, we ask that in the days that we live in, Lord, we know that there's many, Lord, associated with our lives that were waiting, Lord, hoping that that stirring will take place within their heart. For you said, Lord, that you came to seek and to save what was lost. And Lord, as we consider tonight, Lord, the talents and the pounds, the resources and the gifts that you've bestowed upon us, Lord, and asked us to occupy till we come. I pray tonight, Lord, that if there are any talents that are buried in napkins, Father, that you tonight would lay upon our heart the knowledge of where we've neglected to fulfill your call upon us. And we're asking for mercy, Lord, and that you would use us in the days that we live in and that our hearts would be open to use us in whatever way that you want and whatever you desire. And Lord, as you came and you presented yourself as the Messiah and the Savior to the nation that you had foreordained from the beginning, Lord, perhaps maybe even here tonight, there are some, Lord, that were created by you from the womb. They were knit together, made for the very purpose of being in fellowship with you and having a relationship with you. And Maybe tonight, Lord, is the night of your visitation to them, to present yourself to them as the lowly king, the one who's able to seek and to save, the one who's able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we could ask or think, the one who loves us with an everlasting love and who showed that love by dying and shedding his blood that the sins, the many sins, might be forgiven. And if tonight, Lord, that person is here, I pray in Jesus' name that you would win them over, Lord, to let you into their life. And Father, if you see within us that sit here anything within our temple, anything within it be, whether it be our church as a whole or whether it be in our heart just to be your home, oh Lord, we're asking tonight that by the power of your Holy Spirit, by the authority and zeal, Lord, that's in your eyes and in your love, that you would purge those things out of us, Lord, and that we might be a holy people ready and zealous for good works. And so, Lord, hear our prayer and take your word that we've heard tonight and may it be carried into the deepest part of our hearts. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.